This is FinTech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest FinTech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the FinTech Takes newsletter, your host and self-confessed FinTech nerd. Let's go. Hello, and welcome back to FinTech Takes. My name is Alex Johnson, the creator of FinTech Takes, and today is your favorite day of the entire month because today is not fintech investment advice, which must mean that we are being joined by the inestimable Simon Taylor, author of Fintech Brain Food. Simon, thanks for coming back. Crow understands that certain moments matter more for fintech companies, whether it's partnering with a bank, moving into a new market, or going public. Visit www.crow.com fintech to discover how Crow can help fintech companies like yours find value in volatility. Thank you so much for having me. I just found out I'm apparently inestimable. I don't even know what that word is, but thank you. I feel so good. You are very welcome. Well, I mean, I think it's true. I think it's true. Your value and genius cannot even be estimated. You're like one of those priceless pieces of artwork that's just like, yeah, you know, that can never be sold to private investors because how can you put a price on it? It's, it is inestimable. That is you, Simon. Uh, or as, the, as we'd say in the UK, unique in air quotes. That's definitely the case. How are you doing, my man? How are you? I am good. I am good. Thank you for asking. It's been a busy time in fintech. It's kind of the deep breath you take before the next plunge because getting ready to head back out on the road to money 2020 and elsewhere. You, Simon Taylor, will be missed, though we're very happy for the reasons that you are missing and we'll look forward to catching up with you in person in the spring. Until then, though, it is delightful to have you on the podcast. And as everyone who listens to this knows, we are going to be talking about some fintech companies that have caught our eye that we think are interesting. And this is not investment advice, even though Simon and I occasionally do a little angel investing on the side or have dipped our toes very briefly in that pond. We are not professional investors, and this is certainly not investment advice. Simon, can you co-sign on that? Yeah, you're just right in there. Like, this is about the fun and the learning. So sit back, relax, get comfortable, get cozy. We're going to talk about some fintech companies. Absolutely. And Simon, I am going to give you the floor. Why don't you lead off with your first of the two fintech companies? Sure. So the first one is called Galleon. I think it's called Galleon. And this is the off-market real estate market. Now, that's a word salad, but essentially it helps home buyers access off-market inventory and allow sellers to set a price. So I think about it, you know, like how eBay always had that limit auction Mm. where you could set a price where you know there was an auction but unless it hit hit your limit you weren't interested i kind of think about it like that for your house because in some exclusive areas people are actually walking around and sticking flyers through doors to get access to that real estate and to that property but they don't know if that person's willing to sell and the seller you know, might kind of be interested if the price is right, but they don't want to necessarily list it with a real estate agent and kind of go through that whole process and rigmarole. And, you know, they're at home and sometimes people need a little nudge to move. Maybe the kids have left home. Maybe the house is too big for the folks and they're just like, yeah, you know, we'll we'll move at some point, but we're not really ready yet. So it's kind of putting those two pieces together. So I like that piece 
you know, you think about the amount of people that bought a place 20 years ago that have rocketed in value. You think about this market right now and, you know, kind of like being people without a mortgage, you're in a really good spot to potentially sell at high values in a market that's not turning over. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of that, as the million dollar man, the wrestler once said, everyone's got a price. And I think <laughs> there's nowhere to go set that price. There's nowhere to do it. So this just seems like, yeah, kind of interesting. What are your thoughts? I like it. I'm deeply intrigued. I mean, I I guess I hadn't really thought about that, but I'm actually a good example of this, right? So I promise this is not like a humble brag. I'm very happy to have a house uh, living in Bozeman, Montana. Our real estate market is a little crazy, but the house that I bought most recently was one that's in a neighborhood that is kind of older. So it was like built in the 70s and it's kind of up on a hill. So it's in like a nice spot. But the houses are kind of old, but they're also nice because they were all like the in the 70s. They were like the nice custom houses that were built in town. And like, you know, since then, the nice houses have moved into other directions and the new ones are being built elsewhere. So nice established trees, nice neighborhood, older homeowners for the most part. Right. To your point, because they were building these custom homes in the 70s. And so there are a lot of folks in our neighborhood that are older And the houses are starting to turn over, as you sort of indicated with, you know, yeah, kids are out of the house. We're retired. A lot of folks who are downsizing move into a different location. And, you know, the dynamics you described, I think, actually are very much at play in my neighborhood because I do get flyers dropped off at my house unasked for being like, hey, just in case you're interested in selling your home. Or I had someone who actually somehow got my phone number and started texting me and asking if I wanted to sell my home. And I'm like, well, no, I, you know. I'm going to live here for 50 years. Uh, I thought you just had fintech stalkers. It turns out people are after your house Apparently, as well. like apparently. Everybody wants to be Alex right now. I, I <laughs> guess. Yeah, I guess. I'm flattered. So there is that dynamic. And I think I'm not in that position of wanting to sell my home. But I do imagine there are neighbors that I have that are similarly sort of like, I don't really like to your point, I don't want to go through the process of listing this or working with a real estate agent. You know, having sold a home before, I can tell you like, it's a lot of work just to like, stage and go through all the things and get all the data. And I mean, it's like kind of a pain in the ass. And, you know, there's obviously like Zillow and there are other sort of like online marketplaces. But again, as soon as you do anything in any of those places, the hordes sort of descend on you. So I kind of like the idea of, you know, something. I mean, that's the trick with real estate, right? Is that so much of it is people just waiting on the edge of your seat, waiting for you to like go, well, I might be interested. And then they just all descend on you and like, it kind of becomes a free-for-all. So I like the idea of before the free-for-all happens, we will, with the utmost discretion, and I'm, I'm speaking on behalf of a company I don't know. I don't know if this is what they're doing or not, but I would theorize that like, we will be very discreet. We will be very white glove. We will work with you in a very sort of subtle, effective way to just sort of feel out what's happening, right? In the same way that like, a good agent for a athlete will sort of feel out the market before they get to free agency, right? And be like, yeah, just so you know, like there's 30 teams in this league and these six are the ones that seem really interested in your services. And here might be the opportunities. Like you want an agent sort of feeling these things out well in advance of before the time you get to free agency. So I like the concept a lot. I think it makes sense. How are they monetizing this? What's the business model? Yeah, so I actually... 
didn't find that listed when I had a good old poke around. Companies are annoying about not like spelling out their business model right on the front page of their website, by the way. Yeah, I could really do that. <laughs> I imagine there's some kind of take right in there somewhere. Mm -hmm. But I do like this idea that you, you were talking about of putting the seller in control of the process. Yeah. You choose when you're listing, you choose what price to list for, you choose who you want to communicate that with. Yeah if anyone. Yeah. And those listings never expire, so you don't have to worry about added fees and extra reposting. It's like you put it on. So, you know, they're still early. I think this company's still early stage. I think business model subject to change, but it just felt like an interesting product at an interesting time in the market for something just like it. Is it that you don't hear a lot of sort of real estate innovation these days. And, you know, like, as you said, Zillow and Redfin, they've been around for a long time, yep. but this market's in a bit of a different place and everybody hates real estate. Everybody hates moving. Can't we just make it a bit better? I love it. I mean, I think the point you make about putting the seller in control is such a good one, right? Because like, I even remember there was a, a study that was done a while ago where it looked at the average amount of time that someone keeps their house on the market before they sell, right? And you can take a while to find a buyer, right? Especially, especially if it's one of these properties that is a little bit more sort of desired where there's going to be a smaller pool of people who can afford to pay what you, you know, know your property is worth. And what was interesting about the study was it looked at people who list their homes working with a real estate agent and then real estate agents who list their own homes. And what they found was real estate agents will keep their house on the market like three times longer than a person working with a real estate agent will. And the takeaway from the study was real estate agents have a very different incentive when they're trying to sell their own homes as opposed to when they're trying to sell your home. So I do think yeah. it kind of speaks to this sort of problem of incentives where, and I, I've felt this way, you know, selling a house, like there are a lot of people who are like, oh, I think this is a pretty good deal. I think you should take it. And you're not necessarily getting unbiased advice and you don't necessarily feel in control. And I so I do like that. I think to your point about the business model, I mean, the nice thing about real estate and mortgages is, there's so much available margin to grab somewhere, you know? Yeah. So like, it's not one of those things where there's not going to be some slice of money that you can't get as a part of that. It's just a, a matter of kind of picking where that is. And I think maybe it's sort of an ending point for this one. I think it's really interesting that if you think about sort of the arc of the internet and how digitization has sort of changed different industries, we're sort of going from you know, selling a home is kind of bespoke and done through real estate agents and sort of very like kind of private and sort of one off to the Internet where every home is listed on this website and you can look at anyone and it's kind of a free for all evolving back into something that's a little bit more bespoke and kind of putting the sellers in control. So it is interesting how all of these spaces, we kind of go through these booms and busts. We're like, oh, this is going to be great. You know, everything is going to be totally accessible and open. And then it's like, ah, actually, it might be nice if this was a little more private and in control of the seller. So it seems like it's sort of a reaction to that. It's private, but it's peer to peer. Right. You know, it's like, right. it's, you know, that's kind of, it's a best of both. Um, and it's very marketplace-y. Yeah. Um, and do love me some marketplace. Marketplaces totally. come with their own challenges, but do love me some marketplace. And I just love the idea that they had a buy price, as in BYE. And that's where the, if the producers are listening, playing the Ted DiBiase Million Dollar Man, everybody's got a price music right now underneath this would be amazing because I think that's so true. 
you walk around and at some point the number will get high enough for where you're like, ah, okay, maybe it's worth it for that certain generation. So Everybody I love a, a product like this. I love learning from people who are thinking differently about the market and who are reacting to the changes in the market. That's where opportunity comes from. When the world changes, there's a new wedge, there's a new go-to-market, and and that's that's powerful. So what do you got for me? Should we move on? Should we move to the next one? We should. And in fact, you just teed me up great because this is very much a product that is being built specifically to react to what's happening in the market right now. So this one is called Layup and it is a digital bank and the primary product is a prize linked savings account. So prize linked huh. savings for those who are not familiar, basically the idea is to gamify savings so that, for example, if you save at least $50 every week in a savings account, then you get a ticket. And at the end of the month, you get to take all of your tickets and put them into a virtual lottery. And that lottery will reward a set of winners with additional prizes linked to your savings, which could be a boosted interest rate. It could be matching the amount of money that you put in savings, whatever. But the basic principle is applying sort of gamification and really like operant conditioning, right? Like think about the mouse that's in the um, cage pushing for the food pellet and trying to like teach the mouse how to do that. The most effective form of, you know, operant conditioning of teaching people and conditioning their behavior is positive variable reinforcement. So it's giving a reward, but giving it in a variable, uncertain manner where you just don't know when you're going to get that reward. That's what drives every possible version of, I think, really like addictive behavior in human beings and other animals. And so the idea of price link savings is let's apply that to a positive thing, which is saving money. So very popular in different geographies. There's Yada is an example of a, a fintech app that has price link savings kind of built in at the core of what it does. Apparently, there was some legislation passed in the U.S. a while ago that was sort of designed to somewhat encourage more price link savings as sort of a mechanism because there is a lot of research Ew. demonstrating its effectiveness. Interesting. Do you know that I'm tempted, I'm frantically Googling to see if I can find that. This is where you need Jason, right? Makula would know that one in a whole He beat, would know he? that one. Uh, yeah, yeah. But it... it it is an interesting general move towards regulators starting to think about using behavioral psychology yeah. for the benefit of consumers. Like that's it's kind of interesting that they're actively trying to encourage that. There's a whole thing in the UK at the moment called consumer duty, which is like UDAP on steroids. <laughs> this is not, are you doing the right thing for your customers? It's like, are you using behavioral psychology well? And can you demonstrate you are? It's like really leaning into that space. So, you know, the ghost of regulation future over here in Europe, I think there's a possibility <laughs> you start to see that more and more. Yeah. But we all uh, sort of thoughts on how successful Yacht has been and other products like this have been and how successful it could be. Because it's like, doesn't somebody want to save in the first place versus somebody who's gambling and yeah. is just there for the shiny lights and the lottery win? Yeah, so I think that's a really good point. And I think that's actually what's really interesting about layup specifically. And it kind of gets back to the point you were making about sort of reacting to things that are happening in the market. Layup, unlike Yada and unlike others who are doing what I would kind of classify as generic prize link savings, which kind of to your point is like your motivation has to be savings first and then, oh, we make it fun. These guys are taking a, a different tact, which is they don't even think of what they're building as competing with other banking applications. They are trying to compete with sports betting. 
So the reason it's called layup is that it's entirely built around sports betting. And so the prize linked portion of the product, the the chance, the element oh. of gambling is we are going to create gambling opportunities based on sporting events, but you are going to be betting savings that you've already made that you're not going to lose, but that if you win, will double your savings. So basically what they're trying to do is sort of grab people who are using FanDuel or other online betting apps, which have exploded in popularity over the last couple of years, and trying to say, hey, you can still do this same thing. You can get up early on Sunday. You can put on your football jersey. You can go to the bar. You can watch the game. You can have the app open. You can follow all the things that are happening. And you can get the same sort of engagement and experience at highs and lows, but you're not going to lose any money. And when you go home at the end of the night, you're not going to have to explain to your spouse why you just lost $3,000. You can just say, yep, we had fun. I won, blah, blah, blah. So it's trying to sort of morph those two things together. And their mission is to compete with online sports betting. So it's a very interesting spin on fintech but focused on an area that's like well outside of what I would consider to be the banking perimeter. Yeah, it's like embedded finance almost. It's, exactly. It happens to be doing fintech, but it's going for the It's inversity. It's not doing price link savings. Mm-hmm. It's doing sports betting savings. Yeah, you know, it's embedded savings and embedded price link exactly. into the sports betting experience. And that is great. Go to where the behavior already is. Yeah. Go to the customer's context. This is, I mean, you and I have ranted about this plenty in the past, mm-hmm. but I believe financial services is a horizontal that thinks it's a vertical. <laughs> it yes. thinks people have a legal department, they have an accounting department, and they have a finance department, but lawyers don't have branches everywhere and expect <laughs> you to go to the branch. Right. You can call your lawyer. Yep. Your accounting department or your accountant doesn't have a branch that everybody has to go use. Like it's, I don't have to download their app. Yeah, you don't have to download the lawyer's app. Right. It's a horizontal. Yep. And this is exactly what's happening in all of finances. Gradually, slowly, it's appearing everywhere that it's useful and convenient. Yep. It just so happens that it used to be useful and convenient to have a really big building to store gold bars in case the thieves came. But that kind of model works a bit less in a digital age. So finance wants to be embedded and it wants to be engaging and it wants to appear where you're already engaged. And what is more engaging than sports and fun around sports and leisure activity? And if I can align that to something that's positively influencing your finance outcomes, your financial health, yes, I love this. I just know that in order to do this, they're going to have to outcompete everybody else in sports betting. Yes. And everybody else in sports betting is good. They know how to make money. And that's also a very high risk sector. So if you were talking about like where do criminals and money launderers like to launder money, yeah. take some ill-gotten gains, go lose a little bit of it gambling and then wash the proceeds of crime. And hey, presto, I won it at gambling, yeah. quote unquote. And that money is successfully laundered. So- They're in a risky territory. They're doing the right thing in that risky territory. I'm so hopeful for them. What do you think then about where they're at in their journey? Do you have any feel for what the next steps are for these guys? Where are they headed? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think it's pretty early. And I think you nailed it exactly in terms of what the challenges are, right? Because A, very risky. 
And financial services generally just doesn't really like to touch this stuff, right? So we know for a fact there are a lot of like online gaming companies or apps or providers that have a hard time getting bank accounts at banks because most banks don't want to touch this industry, even though it's sort of in that quasi gray legal area where it's kind of legal ish, but sort of sort of somewhat still risky and reputationally frowned on. So building financial apps in this area risky by itself. And I think the other point you made is a really good one. Like it's hard to go up against FanDuel as an example, because they make a ton of money and they pour that money back into making their app incredibly addictive and you have to compete with that. So I think that the journey they're on is figuring out where they can kind of get a wedge in, in terms of competing. It sounds like what they're trying to do is make sports betting, like their version of it, simpler and more accessible. So like, instead of like, the in-depth fantasy football draft where you do research for three weeks and then sit down with your 12 buddies and draft your teams and obsessively like track everything every single week. Like that's its own sort of sub-market within sports betting. It sounds like they're sort of not trying to go head-to-head with that right away, but more trying to do the sort of casual prop betting simplified version of gambling and trying to sort of peel off some of those people. So I think they're trying to start a little simpler and then they may get a little deeper in over time. The other thing, though, that's interesting to me about these guys is there's a long term bet that they're making that I don't think is totally crazy. We'll see if the timing works out. But I think the bet they're making is, as you just sort of illustrated, This is one of those areas where, and I felt this way for a while, right? Like I felt this way in 2020 and 2021 with crypto. I'm now feeling this way with sports betting. Whenever I go out into the world, I always look for like, what is the thing that's being advertised everywhere I go? Like what's on every commercial? What's on every billboard? I remember during the height of crypto, I'd go into restaurants and I'd get a fortune cookie and there'd be an FTX sponsored fortune in my fortune cookie, which was really disturbing. But it's like, wow, when when those things happen, and that FTX one's the best example, because of course they were doing lots of interesting things. But whenever those things happen, it kind of trips this alarm in my brain where I'm like, The only way this industry could be pouring so much money into advertising is if they are making so much money on the other end of it, right? Because people are rational, like they're not going to spend on that advertising if there's not a huge get on the other end of it. And the alarm bell that goes off in my head is if they're making this much money that they can afford to advertise this aggressively, someone somewhere is getting hurt, right? Like they are taking too much money out of someone else's pocket. And what always happens, we saw this with crypto, and we're going to, I think, see this with online sports betting and some other areas is eventually there's going to be a backlash to that sort of speculative behavior that's driving all of this money. And I think in online gambling, you've seen these sports apps team up with all of the professional sporting leagues. Athletes are making money based on gambling happening in their sports. There's just all kinds of potential for harm, I think, on a number of different levels and sort of reputational damage. And I think when that inevitably happens a bit more and there is a backlash to all this activity, I think that's a really interesting window for these guys to step in and say, look, wanting to sort of have stakes on sporting events isn't necessarily wrong but there's a way to do it safer. And so there might be like an opportunity sort of in the same way. Do you remember when there was save now, buy later was sort of like a a reaction to buy now, pay later? Like, I kind of wonder if there might be a similar backlash that opens the door for these guys where it's like, hey, if you're the NBA and suddenly you have a problem reputationally because gambling kind of got away from you and started causing some problems for your customers or your league, I could see someone like the NBA going, you know what? 
maybe we'll partner with them. We'll be able to still have a fun experience, but we won't have this same damage happening in the ecosystem. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. But it made me wonder what happened to the Save Now Pay Later companies. Can you name one that's crushing? I, I like, can't. And, I can't. And maybe that's my ignorance. And maybe it's our collective ignorance, but it, I can't name one. So sometimes like, it's really cool. It's the right thing doesn't happen because humans are going to human right and sometimes the raw execution and the singular focus on doing the thing is more effective than not totally the counter argument to that is mr beast and yeah mr beast to my mind is the guy who is out there just creating fun positive content mm -hmm. the easiest way to get clicks is negativity go chase the headline go chase the negativity go chase the oh my god and he's out there just making fun and doing a little bit of philanthropy and, yep. and kind of generally has positive intent and is the biggest name in the world by far. And that's so much harder than getting attention for negativity. So I think you've got your work cut out for you if you are trying to compete with people who are just singularly focused on getting people into a gambling loop and spiral. If your focus is to get them out of that and be better at addicting them, to doing something that's positive, you're going to have to work 10 times harder. And that's the challenge. Yep. I think you put your finger right on it. I think the other thing you mentioned about finance being horizontal is a really good point because I think the long-term trend that I'd love to see, obviously there's embedded finance where we're going to put financial experiences into existing apps and products and other places. But I think this is almost a different version of that, which is, can we take a financial services function, savings, investing, financial literacy, whatever it is. And can we basically adopt the design patterns of other industries to build a better version of this product? And I think that's a pretty cool concept, right? Because like, I mean, just to use a completely different example, I spend way too much time playing Wordle, right? And it's super fun. It's silly. There's no stakes to it. And I'm not getting any like prizes or anything out of it. It's just a really well-designed game that sort of engages my brain. Crow gets fintech. For decades, Crow specialists have watched this industry evolve and helped companies navigate the moments that matter most, whether finding new sources of funding to fuel growth or responding to complex regulations. Visit www.crow.com fintech to find out how Crow works with fintech companies like yours to help uncover value in volatility. You made me think of an interview, two interviews that the CEO of Superhuman did on the 20 Minute VC podcast. Mm. Uh, so Rahul Vora talks about the difference between gamification and game design. Game design is about creating toys where the experience of playing and learning is the intrinsic reward. Totally. I'm not giving, yes, they use extrinsic rewards like stars and badges, but people confuse the stars and badges with the intrinsic rewards of solving the puzzle. That's where the joy is. That's where the real excitement is. Yes. It's why people play Mario. It's why people sit and play Wordle. It's the intrinsic experience. It's that bubble wrap-like experience of really great, game design, totally. not gamification. And so he talks about several things. In Superhuman, he built a toy that he called the Backslash. And the Backslash is a magical portal to all kinds of crazy things that you didn't think were imaginable. So try it, play with it. And once you start playing with it, it might come really fun and it might surprise you. 
And so hiding all of these power and these features as a puzzle intentionally is so incredibly hard to do and so incredibly next level because you have to be building a premium quality product, I think, at this point to be able to do that, or you have to go harder, you have to go deeper. But this is what I love about the fintech industry. People in this industry love going that bit further. Yeah, They love understanding that fine little detail and they love building the quality on it. So it's stuff like that that gets me really excited. And I probably am belaying here watching far too much YouTube about how people do design games, but you can learn an awful lot from how Shigeru Miyamoto thinks about designing Mario games about how to keep people engaged. You can learn an awful lot about why Tetris is about designing engagement by understanding why Tetris is so engaging. And I think the taking inspiration from non-obvious places is the theme of this one. Couldn't agree more. Could not agree more. All right, let's jump to the next one. Simon, what do you got for me? If you will give me a moment, I'm going to talk about a company called Moment. So Moment is like drive wealth for credit. So if you're not familiar, drive wealth is the company that made stock trading a feature in every product by turning it into an API. So credit has kind of been a big deal lately. I don't know if you've noticed that lending is sexy again. I have. And every hedge fund and asset manager is really indexing heavily into credit at the moment. That's the interest rates are up. We all want to buy credit. We all want to buy debt. So fintech company or bank originates a loan and you know sells it to the consumer, but they then have to sell that loan. Who is the buyer? The buyer is an investor. Who is the investor? The investor is somebody typically who's a hedge fund, an asset manager, a pension fund. Like they would all allocate to this asset class. But lower down, the lowly high net worths, the lowly people with six-figure incomes never get anywhere near this stuff because A, there's a bunch of regulations, why? But B, the infrastructure and the market is just incredibly hard and to deal with and incredibly fragmented. So Moment's hoping to accelerate that by giving fintech companies and anybody else the ability to offer credit like they would offer any stock or other investable asset. So they give you market pricing data, create risk management policies, and they automate a lot of your trade execution. That should mean you get a much faster time to market. Same reason you go to Drive Wealth or any banking as a service platform. And I get that equities-like experience as an end customer buying that product that feels like a product. So this is kind of interesting. As I speak to people who understand this market, they say it's very different to the world of equities where you know you do actually have a market structure. This place is so fragmented. Even if they have a relationship with various people, this is going to be really, really hard to do because there aren't many public data sources. A lot of the trades today are very manual and peer-to-peer. So creating an API for this, if you can do it, would be such a massive unlock for an asset class. So let's see. And going after private credit has been the hard, you know, like the highest hanging fruit on the tree. So this is going into the hard space. Whereas I think about like Atomic Invest, who is everywhere at the moment. Atomic Invest allowed customers to offer things like uh, real estate investment trusts, private equity, venture capital, but they've not got into credit. So 
Atomic Invest is the reason why every small business bank is selling treasuries as a service. And they're all sort of, you know, Mercury saying, buy treasuries and extend your runway and Arc and Meow and all of those companies. They're all sitting on something like an Atomic Invest to be able to go deliver that. But credit is just a little bit harder. So if this happens, they could be a really, really interesting change to the market structure. They've just come out and had their Series A, but I think they've got some interesting challenges. And I know you've written a little bit about the credit market lately. I have. So I thought this one might be like catnip for you. So have at it. It is. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it very much is. So I, I wrote a whole big piece on the private credit space. And it's fascinating because as you said, it's very hot right now. Just from a historical perspective, the basic kind of takeaway is that private credit is one of those markets that used to be dominated by banks, but that as banks have been more constrained by regulation, they have essentially had to step back from the private credit space. So they're not allowed to have the same types of relationships with private equity and other types of sort of investment firms. They're uh, required to hold much greater amounts of risk-weighted capital for all the different types of lending that they do. And so it has sort of boxed them into certain areas and pushed them out of a lot of other areas. And as with everything in capitalism, it's kind of like, you know, water on concrete, right? It finds all the different like sort of cracks and crevices. <laughs> and so in this particular case, private investors have poured into the private credit space to sort of fill this gap. And so if you're a company and you're looking to raise uh, debt, if you are a fintech lender, as you said, that is wanting to loan money, because again, banks have also sort of pulled back from other areas of both consumer and commercial lending, and you want to fill that gap, well, you need to get someone to loan you money in order to do that. That's a different form of hey, private exactly. credit, right? And so- Private credit needs to sort of seep into all of these different areas. And I think what you're touching on here is exactly right. When I dug into the space, it, it was really like going back in time, right? Because all of the things that we're sort of used to in fintech don't really exist in private credit, right? There are no systems for managing complex workflows. There are no case management systems. There's no standardized reporting. There are no standardized dashboards. There's no sort of marketplaces for pricing. There's no transparency at all, really. And so what that means is it's still very bespoke. And the private credit space is dominated by these firms that you've never heard of that have learned to sort of specialize in these particular areas. And so they've gotten really good at reducing down the risks and understanding the risks of these different private credit deals where there, I mean, there is a lot of risk associated with because you're lending huge amounts of money, millions and millions of dollars. So there's a lot of risk associated with this and you have to sort of be able to de-risk the different asset classes or categories that you invest in. So these firms that specialize in it have done really well and their LPs that have invested in these firms have done really well, but the larger market has sort of been cut out of this opportunity. And so I love the idea of more infrastructure marketplaces coming in and trying to add more sort of data and analytics and sort of automated execution and risk management to this market, because I think the end state of it is, as with any market, it needs to become sort of more transparent and liquid over time. And the more that that happens, the better everyone is going to do, right? Because today, you know, there are fintech companies that I can tell you for a fact, they're not able to raise debt capital to fund their lending because 
Maybe they're doing something sort of new. Maybe the founding team, this is the first time they've ever done a lending product. What they're trying to do doesn't yes. fit into an established category. And so they go out to all of these debt capital providers and they can't get any debt capital. But the more sort of refined and granular all of the technology becomes, the more efficient it is to go down market and to get money into those folks' hands and to be able to make this like smaller and we have that in equities. We have that in lots of other areas. We don't have that in private credit. So I, anyone who's building in this space, there's just a huge opportunity, I feel like. Yeah. So um, there's a really good blog post by, I think it's Alex over at um, Ramp. And he talks about yep. how they've, uh, Alex Song, how they've raised $150 million in debt financing. You know, simple things like the deal legal documents can run to a thousand pages with each you know document with three to 10 drafts moving back and forth. And I've looked at those documents, by the way, and it's like mind-numbingly terrible. And there's covenants hidden in there where it'll be like, yeah, just so you know, if your concentration limit for this particular asset class goes above this threshold, then you are in like default with us as a lender and as a borrower. And like, you have no idea what all of those covenants are, how to manage against those. They're incredibly complex. So experience matters, but at the same time, debt is sexy again. It is. So especially if interest rates are higher for longer, this means anybody who can get to market with lending with the lowest cost of funding has a structural advantage, yep. especially if you can distribute that lending and you have a willing buyer. So I think that's kind of interesting. Yep. So there's a new demand, but where's the new supply coming from? And I think moment is one piece of it. There's also on the opposite side, I'm the fintech company. I'm looking to fund my lending activity. I hear a lot about Finley CMS. I know Ramp uses them. I know a few others do. Like, how are you going to build your capital markets desk that goes and manages all of your loan origination and then securitizes that and then sells it and, and sells it into these willing buyers? Having a platform for that is kind of a big lift. So that infrastructure space is is probably often not talked about, but quietly becoming really, really important. So that's there. That's moment. Speaking of taking a moment, should we take a moment for your last one? Oh, let's. This is a fun one. I am also going to take us into a sort of uh, light, slightly more sort of complex sort of area. So this one is uh, series, and they just yeah. raised a uh, combined seed round and series A of about $25 million to build an enterprise operating system that can compete with the established ERP or enterprise resource planning systems of uh. the world. So, Simon, I know this is a particular area of sort of fondness for you, but just to sort of put that point in perspective, the ERP market is massive, right? And it's dominated for the most part by companies like SAP and Oracle, who provide these very large sort of monolithic systems that do a million different things. They're enterprise grade and the fact that they like they don't break, they're reliable, no one gets fired for picking IBM. And all of the sort of large companies in the world use one of like these three or four different systems. It's not an overly competitive market. And, you know, if you had asked me five years ago what was like the last area of financial services that would get sort of disrupted or financial services adjacent software that would get disrupted, ERP probably would have been the one I would have picked because it's just, it's incredibly difficult to crack into that market. And so what Series is doing that I think is kind of interesting is 
they call what they're doing an enterprise operating system. And the basic idea is that they have all of the specific modules that you would want from an ERP type system. So they have commercial banking, they have payroll and HR, they have AP and payouts, they have treasury management, identity verification and identity solutions, they have contracting, they have financial analysis. So they have all of these same types of modules that you know any sort of standard ERP system would have. The difference is that they are designing each one of those modules to stand by themselves. So the principle basically is for companies that are on their way up and that aren't already maybe using an SAP or an Oracle, they're not going to need an SAP or an Oracle for a while. But over time, they will start to need individual components of that stack. And so the idea with Series is, hey, you just need something for billing, or you just need something for contracts, you just need something for treasury management or something for workforce management. In all of those cases, you can just pick out our module to do that. And it does it fine. It's just fine. It, It works great. And over time, if you want to add on additional modules, you can as you need them. And the more of these modules you add on, the more benefit you get. The smarter your system becomes, the more seamlessly integrated it becomes, the more sort of enterprise data you're generating that you can use to run your business. The more you buy, the more you save, as a smart man once said. Exactly. Exactly. It makes sense. This made me think of NetSuite. So the last company to really occupy that space is every company goes through a stage of growth where it goes past QuickBooks or uh, whatever it's using as its accounting platform, and it needs an ERP. And NetSuite is like that next one up. Now, Oracle acquired NetSuite maybe seven or eight years ago. So it's steadily becoming Oracleized, where it's just big and it's enterprise and it's enterprise. And would you like some enterprise with that? And so there's this gap in the market But I'm starting to wonder what the center of gravity for the business operating system is. Because if you look at what a lot of the spend management platforms are doing, they're backing into things that look and feel like accounting, things that look and feel like ERP. If you look at what Rippling's doing, they're an HR software, but there's backing into a lot of this stuff. So it's kind of coming from all different directions. Is this something that has to get that company at a point in time? What's their right to win? Why isn't this a feature of Ramp or Mercury or Airbase or somebody else? I think is an interesting question to pull on and vice versa. If I'm the ERP, am I not going to be embedding finance and spend management at some point? So I think there's a point in time for that. That was point number one. And then point number two, as you said that, I'm going to give you a bonus company. Go. Bonus company is one I found I haven't written up yet. It's going to be written up in a few weeks called Stamply. Stamply Stamply.com says, don't mess with your ERP. Stamply lets you automate AP without reworking your ERP. That's because we support all native functionality for all 70 ERPs. Think generative AI, think driving the ERP manually, and think, oh, I'm such a big corporate, I'm so unbelievably cumbersome, I can't do rip my heart out of all of my businesses all at the same time. The ELP is the circulatory system, it's the brain, it's everything. I can't possibly do that. What if I could just get some efficiency on it? So, like, yeah, I wonder if ELPs don't die 
just new ones get built and they grow with the generation of companies that are growing at the time. That was kind of the hypothesis I had there. So food for thought, would love your comments. I love it. Yeah, no, I think you nailed it. And the one thought I had on series, going back to your point about other companies backing into this space, is I sort of wonder if the play is something a little bit akin to, you know, hey, you should pick us for all the things you don't care about. Right. So like a company that's kind of coming up and is sort of growing quickly, there's going to be different priorities that they have. And so they may be like, you know, we want to have like the world's greatest sort of HR and workforce management solutions. We're going to pick Rippling for that. Great. Fantastic. But, you know, the reality is we don't really care about treasury management. Like we should care about treasury management, but we don't really care about treasury management. But we need treasury management. So where can we get a very sort of just table stakes treasury management solution? And Sirius kind of raises its hand and says, yeah, just pick us. You know, we're competitive. We integrate great with Rippling for HR workforce management. Bring that to the table. That's going to be awesome. And you can use us for this other thing. And then over time, the company goes, yeah, you know, okay. So we have these two pieces in place. Now we really need to add, you know, corporate banking. And maybe that's something commercial banking that they care about. So they go after like a Mercury or someone like that. Or maybe it's not. And they go to Sirius and say, hey, we just need to tack on commercial banking. Is that something you can help us with? Yeah, sure it is. And so I wonder if the play is, for anything you care about, go pick a best of breed provider. For everything else that you don't really care about, but that you need and you need to be integrated well, pick us. And over time, you know, if we end up displacing some of those things or you don't care about them or you want to rip one out and replace it with another, that's totally fine. But you need a fabric to stitch all of these things together and fill in any yeah. gaps. And that's us. But default modular is an interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's an interesting perspective. Maybe that's the play. Because I'm with you. Like, I, I think Ramp, Brex, Rippling, Gusto, like, I think there's so many platforms that are taking on pieces of this. And I wonder if that's when they say enterprise operating system, that's what they mean. Like, we're not going to have the best apps, but we're going to have the operating system that stitches them all together. Yeah, interesting stuff. All right, should we manifest some stuff to close out? Let us manifest. You go first. So I am going to manifest something where we stop focusing quite so much on large language models and start focusing a little bit more on machine learning. And the reason for that is because... In order to do anything with data science, I need good data quality and I need to be able to access that data. And in regulated financial services, I need good data governance. And so many people want to run before they can walk and they want to have LLMs doing all the things. Every CEO wants to talk about it. Everybody wants to talk about the use case. But sometimes before you go squatting 500 pounds, you need to get the basics and the ability (laughs) to move and make sure you're not going to hurt yourself. And I think actually, wouldn't it be great? Because it feels like machine learning is a product whose or or a technology whose time has come. It's hitting that plateau of productivity. But it's even in some of the best neobanks, it's still kind of small scale. You know, five years ago, everybody was talking a good game. But the best of the best are still wrestling with the data governance and making sure that it's explainable and making sure they've got their pipelines in place and making sure they've got all their compliance in place. So back to basics, let's nail machine learning and then let's figure out where LLMs fit around the edges of that. There's plenty of use cases for cosine similarity and cosine dissimilarity. That is going to be amazing. The foundational models are out there doing their thing, raising billions. They're not going anywhere. But if you want to get to them, 
get the basics right first. I, yep, couldn't agree more with that. I think as our friend, our common friend, Francisco, our favorite data scientist likes to talk about, you know, data science is mostly an engineering problem, not a data science yeah. problem. And I think that that's exactly right. And solving those core engineering problems to make the data science efficient and effective and make very simple things for machine learning actually work and drive value. You have to do that foundational core work to use your exercise analogy before you can start setting records with squats or uh, deadlifts. So I could not agree more with that. It makes my manifesting one a little bit ironic because I was actually going to talk about large language models, but was thinking about like what are areas where this might be sort of uniquely useful sort of sitting outside of the traditional financial services offerings. One I've written about before that I feel like banks should help their customers with more is salary negotiation. And I was kind of wondering if that would be an interesting Gen AI use case, Ooh. because a lot of it is like, hey, here are the particulars of my situation. And I've actually helped out with some salary negotiations for other folks in the past. And it, basically what they do is they kind of write like an essay almost of like, here's what's going on. Here's the situation. Here's the negotiating leverage I have. They like have all this input into it. And that input is both sort of quantitative in terms of like data and giving you the facts and the details, but it's also sort of emotional in the sense that like, here's how I'm feeling about this. Here's the sort of here's takeaway what I care I about. Yeah. yeah. And, and it, it's a, it's a hard thing to parse. And so I think any service traditionally that's helped with salary negotiation has had to be a human being on the other end of that process. But I wonder how much effective salary negotiation like advice we could turn into an automated service using Gen AI. So that's my manifesting. Might be fun for someone to kind of poke at that problem a little bit and see if anything interesting comes up. Have a play, guys. I imagine with enough prompting, GPT-4 might actually do a pretty good job. Send us your use cases, you know, like drop us an email, say hello, find us on Twitter. You'll find me at SYTaylor. You'll find Alex H underscore Johnson, or is it Alex underscore H? I, I think remember. it's Alex H. I think you nailed it. Oh, look at that. I, I've been trying to find that Twitter handle forever. You just, <laughs> yeah. It's the underscore that throws me, man. I, well, I uh, I had to switch from an old name to a new name in the past because I, as with everyone, you sort of pick the Twitter name before you realize how important Twitter is going to be to your livelihood. And yeah. so I had to swap that around a little bit. But yes, find Simon and I on Twitter where we spend way too much time. Make sure to read FinTech Brain Food if you don't already. And Mr. Taylor, we'll do this again soon. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of FinTech Takes. Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest FinTech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love FinTech Takes, please tell a friend.